All right, here we go. <laughs> All right, everybody ready? We can get started. All right. Um, I, I don't remember what day it was. Let me see if I can tell you how far back it was. Let me look. Um, I think it started on April the 25th. April the 25th, 2023, I did what I call a today's focus. It was supposed to be something simple. It was supposed to be something easy. It was based off the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. So we can all look at this really quick and I'll read it. For those who don't, uh, don't remember what happened or didn't hear what happened. It started off as a nice little thing. thought it was going to be clever. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. So the today's focus, I always try to give someone one, one thing to focus on throughout the day. So Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10, was the thing I wanted everyone to focus on. Because if we read it, it says, My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So I took that verse and showed how Charles Haddon Spurgeon used that verse. And of course, he went very allegorical on it. All right. So how he does so is my beloved, that's Christ, spake and said unto me, the individual Christian, rise up, rise up from your worldliness, rise up from your spiritual complacency, rise up from being, you know, focused on the wrong thing and, uh, and my fair one, and come away. So this is Christ talking to the individual believer to rise up and follow him, to come with him, to, re- to remove yourself from your worldliness, your spiritual apathy. And it's a typical, you know, Spurgeon type of devotional or sermon because he's very poetic, very allegorical. And I simply said, hey, I don't know if that's the correct way to handle the Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 10. How dare I go against Spurgeon, but... I just don't know if that's the correct way. Because if you allegorize it that way, and you do, and so I told everyone my challenge was, go to Song of Solomon, start in verse 1, and go through every verse and turn it into an allegory that this is about Christ and the individual believer. Before you get done with the Song of Solomon, it's going to get really awkward, it's going to get really weird, and I don't know how well that's going to work. But at least try it. I then... <laughs> I, so that, that, I don't give much thought about it. I'm like, there's nothing really controversial about that because everyone can just work through it and see what they find, right? Like, I just kind of put, placed the, the concept out there. Hey, just try it. But I, I get an email. It's not even an email. It's like a small book, right? And someone is furious with me, right? How dare, basically, how dare I even put forth that that cannot be the right way to interpret it because there's only one way to interpret it and the only way to interpret this is that it's an an allegory of our love for Christ and Christ's love for us. But they didn't, but guess what they didn't do in the email? They didn't do what I said. Of course not. Of course, of course. But they told me they've read it a hundred times. They've read it a hundred times, but I'm like, just work through it verse by verse. And, and you know how my frustration is, right? Because I got no problem if you disagree. But my thing is, do the study, show me the study, and then guess what? Most likely, typically, when two people actually do the in-depth study of whatever you're disagreeing on, you have a far greater chance of coming to what? 
some kind of an agreement. I'm not saying you're going to be in full agreement, but you can at least say, okay, based off my study and based off my study, you're going to eliminate a lot of possibilities, right? At least I would think so. And then you're like, okay, we're, we're not 50 miles apart. Now we're only five miles apart. Or ten. But typically, people won't do the study, but they'll continue to tell you that you're wrong, which really drives you crazy. So I spent two plus hours responding to every line of the email. I tried to be nice. I tried to be patient. There was, by the time, I did get a little frustrated because I was basically being accused that I'm silly, uh, disingenuous, blind, that it's the fruit of a dead faith, like all of just like, just attack, 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 attack. And, and that gets a little irritating, right? Because one, I don't know if this may come as a shock to everyone, there is really no agreement in church history in how to interpret the Song of Solomon. Oh, wait, there is literally no agreement in church history in how to interpret anything, okay? But especially the Song of Solomon, right? There's some different ones. So here's what we're going to do. We started a mini-series on the Song of Solomon where I did my answering the email. Then we're going to be doing, we're going to be reviewing some sermons that was suggested for me to review. And then, but what I want to do today is we're just going to do an overview of the Song of Solomon. We're going to do just an overview to just see what, what information we can or cannot find. Because if you're going to, you know, if you're going to start arguing on how to interpret the book, we need to kind of step back and look at the big picture, all right? But before we do that, I'll just remind you, there are at least four ways that have been suggested in church history and how to interpret the Song of Solomon. There should be more. There should be more. But I'll give you the main four, and we'll look at some of the verses just to show you how it works. Are you ready? And I already covered this, but I'll go through this quickly just so that everyone's on the same page. Are you ready? Here we go. There are the four different interpretations of the Song of Songs are the following. Here we go. Number one, that it's an allegory of God's love for Israel. It is an allegory, but it's an allegory of God's love for Israel. Taking a drink of water so I don't lose my voice, all right? Now, if you if, just th- think of now this 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 acknowledges or this argues that it's an allegory, but it argues it's an allegory about God and Israel. Now, what, would, what do you think would be the strength of this interpretation? What would, like, if you were to go, wait, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I agree it's an allegory, but if it is an allegory, I, I would argue that an allegory between God and Israel would make the most sense for what reasons? Why do you, why would, what would you use to justify this approach to allegory? That it's an allegory between God and Israel. Okay, well, if you go to, I believe, verse 1, we have, we have an, an identifier, right? The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. What do we know about Solomon? Well, he's a king of Israel. Okay, all right, so, there, so okay, that's, so right there is helpful, right? So he's, he's the last king of the United Kingdom of Israel. He's a king of Israel. Obviously, we are located where in our Bibles? 
Old Testament where the emphasis is what over and over and over? Israel. There's no way to get around that, right? Unless you say Israel's not Israel. Well, don't, don't give me that whole started. We, we've been through that again, right? But just based on who the human author is, based on its location in the Bible, if you're going to say it's an allegory, being an allegory between God and Israel, to me, makes, makes a lot of sense. Just on the, that, that criteria, all right? Now, sec, that's the first interpretation. We'll look at it just briefly in a minute. The second one that's offered is that it's an allegory of Christ's love for his church. So it's an allegory, but it's between Christ and his church. Now, if you're going to make an argument for this, if you were going to make an argument for this, what would you have to, what would be, what would you have to do to try to make your argument? I think you would have to replace Israel with the church. I think you would have to. To me, I think you would have to. There's just no way to get around it. Because because obviously, historically, Solomon wasn't talking about the church, right? I mean, if you're going to say it's an allegory, he wouldn't have been talking about the church. The church would not be understood unless you do what? Every time you see Israel, you say it's the church. So anytime anything's picturing uh, Israel, then it's actually picturing the church, which then presupposes all kinds of problems, right? Because now if Israel is not Israel and Israel is the church, then, then you just start down that path and everything becomes something else. Solomon is not really Solomon. He is Christ and Israel is not really Israel. It's the church. And then I don't know where you end up. It's just... You open that door, and I don't know why people don't understand the hermeneutical dangers you get yourself into, right? You just, you know, that's what I, I hate. I, I know whenever I use this illustration, people don't like it. But, I mean, I watched this take place in real time with Harold Camping, who was in charge of Family Radio. I mean, I was a student with uh, in their school of the Bible, and he went to someone who was like, you know, he, he always taught scripture and scripture alone. He always taught that. He didn't believe in any extra biblical revelation. He believed God talked to us through the word. It was compare scripture with scripture. Bible, 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 Bible. His entire radio station was focused on scripture just being read without commentary six, seven, eight times a day. It was just, it was all scripture, scripture, scripture. But then he started bringing in this concept in his interpretive process where there's a, there's a deeper meaning. You had the historical meaning, but then you had everything pictured something else. Everything pictured something else, right? So before long, it turns into, oh, that's interesting. Okay, that pictures this. Okay, that's really cool. Right? And so I, I was eating it up, thinking it was great. The next thing you know, well, wait a minute. Babylon represents basically Satan, Israel going into captivity represents the church, now under the control of Satan. So now everyone needs to leave their church because the church is now under the control of Satan. And if you stay in the church, you're taking a mark of the beast and you will not save. And you're like, how did we get here? And then he's telling everyone, leave the church, telling everyone the world's going to end in 1994. Then he moved it to like 2010, 2011. And nothing, all of his predictions went wrong. He ended up having a stroke. Uh, he kind of repented a little bit at the end, and then he died. But it all started with a really, it sounded like a solid hermeneutic. Because when he was saying, this picture's this and this picture's that, 
it, it sounded interesting. It sounded very biblical. And then the next thing you know, Israel's not Israel. Babylon is not Babylon. And, and, and it's just like, but that, whenever you try to tell people that's where it can go, they're like, no. But that's because they, they like, sometimes, especially with all millennialists, they're like, well, no, 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 no. It, it doesn't have to go that far. But then you get to control what is, what is symbolic and what's not symbolic. Like, you get to control Israel's not Israel. But if you get to control that, why can't I come along and control something different? So it just, to me, it's dangerous. But all right. Those are the first two. So what are the first two major ways of interpreting the Song of Solomon? Okay, an allegory for God's love for Israel. Number two, allegory of Christ's love for his church. Number three, it is an extended type of the Christ church marriage illustration. Now, we all know where the Christ church marriage illustration is found, right? Uh, no, it way way before, or not way before Revelation, but before Revelation. Okay, someone is kind of saying where Ephesians chapter five. Okay, verse twenty-two. Okay, right. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and therefore is the Savior of the body. So remember, it draws this illustration between uh, uh, Christ and the church and marriage. They're saying this is an extended version of it. That's kind of weird because this, I, I wouldn't want to, I would not refer to this as an extended, as, as the one book says, uh, an extended type of the Christ Church marriage illustration. I would say this is the original Christ Church marriage illustration, if we're going to use it that way, because it can't extend something that doesn't exist yet. Ephesians would be the one extending it. All right, so so I would say this would be the original Christ Church marriage illustration. Yeah, that's what I would put. I'm going to change the way the book describes it. I just don't, I just don't like that way of describing it. To me, it's confusing. All right? So view number one is that it's an allegory of God's love for Israel. View number two, it's an allegory of Christ's love for his bride. View number three, it's a type of the Christ church marriage. It's a, the original uh, type of Christ church and marriage illustration. All right? Then number four. It's a view that exalts love as the most powerful and desirable of human emotions. It's about, about the, the idea of love as a powerful, desirable emotion. I'm not, I, I think that's so whitewashes it and spiritualizes it. It's, I'm not in agreement with that. It, it, it's just, it's, it exalts love as a powerful and desirable human emotion. Basically, the, the last one tries to go with a more literal approach, but it's a, it's, a, it's a sanitized literal approach, right? It's literal, but they want to sanitize it. They want to make it sound spiritual. They want to make it sound godly. They want to make it sound acceptable for church, okay? I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to just add one to this, <laughs> that it's a disturbing story 
of physical intimacy and love. And I'm going to put the word disturbing. I know I'm not supposed to say that in church, but the story is messed up if you really think about it from a human perspective. A disturbing story of physical, physical intimacy and love. Now, if I say it's disturbing, people get mad, but let's just think of, well, uh, I know for some of these, I try to get you some different things to think about, but for, this, for, for my, this last one, let me explain why I think it's disturbing, okay? All right, who wrote this book? Solomon, all right? Solomon had how many wives? 700 wives, 300 concubines, okay? And so he was a serial polygamist, a serial adulterer, who becomes an idolater, right? I mean, that's just historical fact. Nobody can get around it, right? I mean, if you've got that many women, okay, you're, and we know that it turned negative. These wives obviously were clearly pagan. So not only did he have all of these wives, he had pagan women. So he's married. So in a sense, he had united himself to unbelievers. He had violated the rules about the kings having multiple wives. He had violated every command you can think of. Well, when you come along and read a book about his supposed love for a woman, the question any human person reading it would be, which woman? So this would be describing a relationship that by all definitions would be considered what? Adulterous. <laughs> okay. That's disturbing. Now, I'm not supposed to say that, but it, it is disturbing. Right? So, and not only that, let me just give you an example, right? I'm not going to go through, I I was going to go through a lot of the different things here, but um, okay, let's see here if I can find it. Um, It says here, um, just read from this one book. Right, they talk about the literal view, right? They says, this view seems to be most in line with God's view on the, on the beauty, wholesomeness, and purity of marriage and stands in contrast with the world's view on sex. Solomon is hardly a role model for the faithfulness of marriage and the maiden was just another number in his long list of lovers. See chapter 6, verse 8. So everybody look at chapter 6, verse 8. Okay, chapter 6, verse 8. All right, what does he say? There are three score queens, four score concubines, and virgins without number. My, undef- my dove, my undefiled, is but one. <laughs> She's the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughter saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. So, hey, she's, she's just one of many women. <laughs> no, when you read it that way, that's a little disturbing, is it not? Oh, wait, come on. Can we be honest? Yes, okay. But, but because we read it in church, what do we do with it? We'll flip it around and go, well, she should be happy because she's getting the most praise, right? Hey, hey, I know there's all these other women, but you should be happy. He really, really likes you. Right? Agreed? 
Agreed? We are, we're, we're in agreement here? Or does, does someone have... Ever, Yeah, but we know, but we know that he has all those other women. Yeah, 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 yeah. He has a lot of women. So, like, I mean, I put it this way: most books read that that he's just saying you're one of many, right? So, and, and so, I mean, even books who try to pray, I mean, from from this book that tries to at least turn this into a positive, even they have to admit. This is messed up. Even they have to go, mm, something's wrong here, right? They still flip it around and say, but it's a beautiful picture of love, and it, it shows the, uh, a biblical view of marriage. No, there's nothing biblical about any. It's just disturbing. Now, people don't want to hear that. People get mad and get upset. But look, everyone has to know. So, so guess what? I mean, the church has had struggles in how to handle this, right? You go, you just allegorize it to death, right? So at that point, it just means whatever you want to make it mean. Or others, especially in the modern church, have turned it into basically a manual and how we should have physical relations as a husband and a wife. Like they turn it into like, this is a, almost a, a, a book on sexual intimacy it's a textbook and how like so so a lot of the mega churches have done that because it's scandalous and it okay well that that's i but that still takes away from the disturbing nature of it right because no matter how you look at it who's writing it how many wives seven or three someone emailed me they kept saying that's the number like all of a sudden it hit them 700 300 700 300 and then they were like, my whole view of the book changed. Oh, yeah, right, 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 exactly. Right. Yeah. That was early on in the process, which means, and if we do look at it that way, that means the, the woman here is getting ready to be forgotten relatively quick because a whole lot of more women, a whole lot more, I mean, like, it, it's no way to get around it. I mean, it's, now, some people would be like, I don't know what you do with that. I, in some ways, I love it. In some ways, I hate it. I love it in the sense that it demonstrates that even the people in the Bible are messed up as we are. On the other hand, I hate it because then you almost look like it's promoting it where we know God can't be promoting it. So then, like, what do you do with it? So those are, four, I gave five different views of how to interpret it. What are number one? Allegory of God and Israel. Number two, Christ and the church. Number three, and ex- oh, the original Christ, yeah, Christ church marriage illustration. No, next, somehow love is a great emotion and powerful. And then next, a disturbing story of physical intimacy and love. And I and I I, I go with the disturbing one because I don't know how to I don't know how to, I can't I don't know how you come along and you know we'll call it well we can't say turning into a Disney movie since Disney's bad today, I guess. And whatever conservatives tell me are bad, I can't keep up. So it's a, I don't know what we call it. If it's not Disney, we don't want to say Hallmark because I think conservatives got mad with Hallmark too. I don't know what we call it. We've Christianized it. We've, we've Sunday schoolized it so that it's acceptable in church. But if you think about it, most pastors don't deal a lot, a lot with it unless they're going to go straight. If you don't go a straight allegory, 
pastors are not going to deal. Either this seems to be your options in church today. Complete allegorize it or you're going to turn it into like, ooh, we're going to be talking about sex at church. Okay, almost acting like, you know, junior high boys, right? It's like, those are our two options. So I know this. Let's step back and do an overview this morning and see what we can find. So grab the Bible dictionary. Let's just see how the Bible dictionary wants to handle it. Nelson's Bible dictionary, find the... Uh, the Entry for the Song of Solomon. And we'll just see what happens here. All right, everybody ready for this? And for those listening online, if you want to argue with me, look, I, I, I mean, I guess you can send me all your arguments. At this point, I don't really know some point, I just grow weary of arguing about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know how else, put it this way. I know all of the different ways of interpreting it, and I don't think there's any easy way to get around this. But here we go. You ready? All right. According to them, we'll start with on page, everybody see page 1192? All right. And we see the entry for Song of Solomon. All right. And what do we begin with? It's an Old Testament book written in the form of a lyrical love song. All right, stop right here. They're going to refer to this as a lyrical love song. Question. If something is a lyrical love song, right? Let's just think about it. I'll try to ask you this question. In the Psalms, in the book of Job, are there times... I'm just going to throw this out hypothetical. This, this is just a question. We'll start with Job. Job, many would feel, contains some form of Hebrew poetry, right? Are there times Job expresses emotions and feelings and thoughts and desires that we would say are not good to have? Right? He wishes he was never born. He wishes he was dead. I mean, that sounds like, that's not something we are to emulate, Right? Something we can relate to, but not to emulate. In the Psalms, does the psalmist at times express emotions and desires that we would be like, whoa, he was in a really dark place? Don't we agree? All right. Not necessarily something we should emulate, but something that we can relate to, and therefore we perceive those, those sections to be what? Descriptive, not prescriptive. Now, if this is a lyrical love letter, is it possible that while expressing this love, the feeling of love may have been, we're not going to question its, its uh, historical accuracy, but it may be describing a love that from a broader theological perspective would not be something that is prescriptive in its setting. In other words, its setting is clearly in an adulterous situation. There's no way to get around it. It's Solomon, right? So therefore, you wouldn't say, take these emotions and connect it to an adulterous situation, but it's describing a love, it's describing a love in a situation that may not be one that's prescribing that we find ourselves in the same situation. It's just describing a historical reality of Solomon's life at this time. 
If you think about it, we have three books from Solomon, right? Basically three books from Solomon. What are the three books? Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon, right? Agreed? I think there may be some Proverbs that he did not write, but I think most of them he did or, he, he, or accredited to him, yes? All right, now those describe three radically different things, yes? Three radically different things. In fact, it's always bizarre because if you look at Solomon's life, what you really get is the wisest man who ever lived ends up a serial polygamist, adulterer, idolater. That's a, that's, a, that's a sad way to go, right? Meaning that the wisdom was not sufficient to keep him from these things. So then you're like, well, how wise really was he? Like, like it's the question that everyone always tries to figure out. But those are three radically different approaches. Now, I don't know if we take all three of those together, does that change the way we interpret each one, right? Like we always read Proverbs like, hey, read Proverbs. The Proverbs a day will keep the devil away. Learn the Proverbs and you won't sin. The person who wrote the book didn't even follow them, right? For crying out loud. Yes? Okay? So like, I don't know. Does that change the way we interpret it? Ecclesiastes makes a lot of sense, right? Because that explains that he spent a good portion of his life trying to figure out why. No, the purpose of life was, right? So he talks about how wonderful love is, and then in Ecclesiastes he's like, well, what's the point of life? Right. So do we understand a Song of Solomon as happening somewhere during, like maybe during that time in Ecclesiastes, right? He's trying to figure it all out. And does he not pursue women in Ecclesiastes? Yeah. He pursues everything, and everything's meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. So could it be that he, he was pursuing this kind of thing, at, but Ecclesiastes tells us he finally decided that it was all meaningless. He also seemed to be pursuing knowledge and wisdom in Ecclesiastes, yes? And he seemed to determine that that's meaningless. Now you think about it, wisdom just for wisdom's sake is somewhat meaningless, Right? So like, I don't know, I don't know like where we, if you try to group these together, there's always debates on which one was written when. Like there's always these debates on the chronological order for these three books. Is that what you're looking at? Yeah. Well, in some ways it would make sense if, if Ecclesiastes came after both Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Because then Ecclesiastes would be almost like he's at the end of his life recounting all of these stages he went through. Right. It goes down, right. So, but I don't know if we have a... Let's do this. Let's look up the dates for uh, all three, use the Bible dictionary. Go to Proverbs and see what the date is for Proverbs. I'm not saying, I don't think there's agreement on the chronological order. See, well, that would not help us. Well, or maybe it would help. I don't know. Yeah, sometime while he was king. All right. 
What, Song of Solomon? Yeah. So, so if Song of Solomon is early, Ecclesiastes is middle, then do we say Proverbs is the end? Okay. Because if we, if we put these in some kind of chronological order, yeah, say contem- that's just when they put them all together. Yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think there's any way to be dogmatic. For Proverbs? Yeah, if they put everything during his reign, that's not helpful at all. Unless you're going to say in a 40-year period, he did a lot, a lot. He was doing a lot in 40 years, right? He was getting women. He was getting wisdom, okay? <laughs> He was, he was, he was getting, a, and he was getting very, very frustrated with life. Well, that would make, that would be really conf- confusing. Right. Right. It would have to be during that 40 year period. It looks like all three are going to be during that 40 year period is where everyone's putting them. So within 40 years. Yeah, I, but see, the Ecclesiastes to me is reflective. Like, hey, here's all the journey I've been, and here's what I finally figured out. It must have been written early in his reign. It does say that the one um, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is is, is early. Dictionary. Okay, so let's go with this concept. All right, let's go with this concept. If, let, let's see if this works. We got a 40-year period, right? Let's see if this works. Just This is hypothetical. Anyone listening online, we're not making dogmatic assertions. But if we got a 40-year period where we have to get all three written, right? Song of Solomon very early on, right? Doesn't have a lot of women. He's got, I mean, he's got a lot, but I mean, not c- compared to the numbers he's going with, right? So... Yeah, he, he, he seems to be pursuing this, and it's wonderful, and it's great. He's king, he's got power, he's got position, and he's got women. So he's probably, things are going really, really good right here, right? It's like the spring of life, right? He is, love is in the air, everything is good. Agreed? Now, somewhere, I don't know how, where the Proverbs come into play, but somewhere in there, he almost becomes like, maybe he starts growing a little tired of the women or seeing that maybe it's a little vain. And so he's like, I'm going to pursue wisdom, right? Possibly. But I mean, is it not? I mean, let's see if this is fair. Let's see if this is fair. He comes across pretty harsh about certain sins in in, uh, Proverbs, does he not? Now, sometimes what happens is the weakness we perceive in ourselves is the sin we become the strongest against, right? Right? You, You start yelling and screaming at the sin that you know you struggle with. I mean, that's, sometimes that's the way it works, right? I mean, we've seen that a lot, right? With, it can be politicians. It can be preachers. Um, so remember that, that little that saying, you know, you protest too much, right? And sometimes the one who's protesting the most is the one. Because you've seen this, a lot of people who are very hostile to homosexuality come out to be homosexual because they're trying to basically repress what they are. 
right? And Christianity sometimes leads to that because you can't just be honest with what you are, which is very difficult. So maybe he gets into all the women, and I'm just, this is just pure speculation. And then he kind of like, well, there's got to be more to life than this. So he pursues almost a moralistic wisdom, right? And then he gets, as he gets closer to the end of his life, he kind of reflects on all of these things he's tried, and he's kind of come to meaningless, 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 but he ultimately realizes fear God is where he should have started. It should have been, because remember Ecclesiastes, what's the key phrase in Ecclesiastes? No, under the sun, 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 because everything under the sun is meaningless, right? In other words, when he's looking at life, which direction? Remember, there's the two concepts. This is what? Horizontal, this is Vertical, looking at life from a horizontal perspective, meaningless. Looking at it from a vertical perspective, then everything makes sense. Maybe then he's writing, so in that 40-year period, he goes through this entire major life, whatever. I'm not saying it works perfectly, right? So, but I'm saying if he's, if this is a lyrical, how did the dictionary describe it? A lyrical love song right? Then maybe it's just express, all this is, we should just read it as a historical expression of the reality of the time, not giving us the morality of it. Because scripture does that a lot, right? Does it give us the morality uh, in any way, shape, or form of Abram taking Hagar? It just expresses the reality of it. That happens a lot in the Old Testament. Like you read the Old Testament, sometimes you're like, why isn't there condemnation of this? This is horrific. It's just giving you the details. Maybe it's just giving us the reality. Well, in Song of Solomon, there are no consequences. We don't, yeah, but later on we see consequences. Yes, yes. Right. So, and it's interesting. If we read the consequences, does that not greatly impact how we should interpret the Song of Solomon? Like, if you read the consequences, you're kind of like, I don't know if the Song of Solomon is such a good thing. Right? Like, I think for the allegory to work, you just have to separate it from what? His entire life. You just got to remove it. Like, boom. And I don't think we can do that. It, it, it all, it has to fit together in that 40-year period. And, uh, and when you get to the end of his life, you're like, I don't know if the Song of Solomon is such a good thing. Possibly. All right. Okay. I know we took a massive detour there, but that's okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's read this. Okay. An Old Testament book written in the form of a lyrical love song. Some interpreters believe this song speaks symbolically of the love of God for the nation of Israel. But others insist it should be interpreted literally as a healthy expression of romantic love between a man and a woman. Now, please note, once again, it gives us these two disturbing... Co- I don't like the dichotomy here. Everyone wants to just make it something positive. Now, the speaking of God in Israel, that makes the most sense from a historical standpoint, but it doesn't make any sense that Solomon would just go into a full-blown allegory here, right? It just doesn't, because how does it begin? Yeah, the book, Song of Solomon. Yeah, the song of songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. I don't know how you just read that and immediately go, oh, that's Israel. 
So what would we, to say that this is Israel, what would we need to, to, to figure out? What would we need to find? We would need a textual justification that Solomon just went what? Full-blown allegorical, and then he's trying, to exp- he's trying to connect this with Israel, right? We would have to have textual justification. Now, at this time, we don't have the time right now to look for that textual justification, but we would need that. Does that make sense? Like, all I'm trying to say, if you're going to go something as allegorical, what do you typically look for? You got to look for something that would give you a reason that is allegorical, right? What, what, what's the uh, old saying? Go with a literal sense. Go with a literal sense until the literal sense makes no sense. Or seek no other sense until the literal sense makes no... In other words, you always go with the literal sense until the literal sense makes no sense. And then when it makes no... Like when Jesus says, I am the door, clearly it makes no sense to treat that that Jesus is literally a physical door, but he's a metaphorical door. When he says, I am bread... We don't treat, you know, that makes no sense. Well, all of a sudden, just reading here, go, wait, Solomon is not Solomon. Solomon is God, right? Well, if Solomon is God in the Song of Solomon, everyone understand how utterly weird that is? Because then you just made God a serial adulterer. Okay, that, that's disturbing, is it not? <laughs> okay, so then guess what you have to do? You have to make it an allegory, and you have to just remove Solomon completely from it. But yet the book begins with what? It literally identifies Solomon at the beginning. Please note, do all books identify the author? No. So if you're going to make this an allegory, what would be probably the first thing I would look for? Solomon not even being mentioned. That would be a, that would be a good help. Because once you insert him, you're inserting a real historical figure which now greatly begins to impact at least in my mind how far I can go all right so the but they see the second the thing that bothers me is they this is the two the two things they offer us it is a it's it's either God for the nation of Israel or it's a healthy expression of romantic love between a man and a woman why does it have to be a healthy expression is everything you read in the Bible a healthy expression? Okay, I don't know if everything between Abram and Sarai was a healthy expression of a marriage, right? Hey, honey, uh, we're going to go into this land, tell everyone you're my sister. You may be taken and they may use you, but hey, that's okay. Would everyone say that's a healthy expression of marriage? Hey, honey, I can't have a child. Here's our handmaid. Go use her. I don't think that's a healthy expression of marriage, right? Everything David did, was it a healthy expression? No, I don't. There's almost no one in the Bible that gets out saying everything they did was a healthy expression of anything. So why? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, we can go on and on, all of them, right? So why do we come to the Song of Solomon and go, it has to be either an allegory or a healthy expression. How about it's a literal historical description of a very sinful man expressing love and physical desire for one of his many women. That's probably not going to be very popular to say, is it? They go on to say, it is certainly... 
one of the most unusual in the Bible. Now, that is important. what, What could we possibly do with that? What, what would that tell you? Well, okay. Well, I think, one, it could be a hermeneutical clue. So, sometimes when something is really weird or, or unusual, that's when you have to stop and kind of go, well, I wonder how we should interpret this. So I do agree that because it's so unusual, it, it's why it may lead some people to approach an allegorical. I think the unusual nature of it In this particular case, because the allegory doesn't work. That's my argument. See, my argument is because it's unusual, I would possibly revert to allegory. But if I run the allegory verse by verse by verse, it falls apart and it gets really weird. Really weird, right? Really weird. Like you've got, for example, you've got verses about uh, myrrh laying between her two breasts. Well, the allegorical method says that the breast represents the Old and New Testament. What in the world is that? And the myrrh is Christ, who is the bridge between the Old. That's just, that just gets weird, right? And there's other verses that, that it just gets re- like, whoa, whose breast and who what and this is and tasting what? For, like it, there's some stuff going on there that I just like trying to make that allegorical. Not only does it sound ridiculous, It just sounds really like, I don't know what other words to describe. It sounds kind of yuck. Like, it's kind of like, this is weird, right? So, so, yeah, so there I have a hard time. So, the unusual, so make sure everyone follows. Everybody paying attention? Okay. The unusual nature makes me want to go allegory. Running the allegory, and and I don't know if anyone remembered this, we did this as a church. We tried to go verse by verse in the Song of Solomon, and I think the church unanimously at that time agreed the allegorical doesn't work. I don't know how many verses we got in, and everybody was kind of like, uh, that got weird, right? So my, so the unusual leads me to the allegorical. Running the allegorical made me realize that that doesn't work. So then that makes us stop, and then makes me return to the literal. But the unusual nature makes me realize that the literal, we've got to view it somehow differently. So I'm arguing, or at least trying to argue, that it's got to be, the, the answer to this book has to be found in the fact of Solomon's totality of his life, right? In other words, we've got, Pro, we've got Song of Solomon, we've got Proverbs, and we've got Ecclesiastes. And taken as a whole... They represent, it appears, a 40-year period in one man's life where he goes from the son to the king to all of this power, and ends in a very depressed way, right? But somehow these books have to be interpreted during that 40-year period. They all... Now, listen to what I'm about to say here. I'm not saying they're allegorical, but they all symbolize, or they all picture, maybe that's a better word, different periods in his life. And the Song of Solomon, it seems, I don't know if all sources, that this is very early on. Proverbs may be somewhere in the middle, and Ecclesiastes is at the end. 
almost in a regretful way, I've tried all of this stuff. So maybe what we would need to do is find, and, and I don't think we have time to do it now, but we can try really quick. Everyone turn to Ecclesiastes and just see if we can quickly find a verse that talks about his pursuit of women and his pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. I'm not saying this is the answer, but the unusual nature makes us at least have to stop and go, something's going on here. So take a, just start skimming through Ecclesiastes. You find where he starts talking about all the women. Okay, what does he say about wisdom? Okay. See what we can find here. Now, please note, uh, Ecclesiastes 2.15, Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the full, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise than I said in my heart? This also is Ecclesiastes 2.15. My translation doesn't say folly. Vanity. Now, what's vanity there? I know, but what, what, what is he saying is worthless? What is he saying is vain? What is he saying is meaningless? What is he calling vain? What is he calling foolish? What is he calling folly in Ecclesiastes 2.15? Is he saying wisdom is? What he's saying is that whatever happens to the fool also happens to the wise man. So then it seems he almost calls into question what? Wisdom itself. Now, you, oh, you see why I'm trying to, what, you see what I'm trying to point out here? Look, we've got to still find the thing about the whip. Okay, we, everyone, I want everyone to pay attention real quick because I don't want to lose it, everything here. Everybody see what I'm trying to do here? If he determines that wisdom is folly, then that would put Ecclesiastes at the end, women's at the beginning, Wisdom's in the middle, and at the end of Ecclesiastes, he looks back and realizes all of it in some way, shape, or form was, was worthless. So then that would, that would greatly impact how we interpret both books. Or I, 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 is, anyone, is, is there any possible, is anyone having issues with the, that Ecclesiastes 2.15, or are you looking for other verses? Okay, all right. There's a time for everything. Well, he definitely meant a time for everything. Okay. Anything about women? Found the wine. Okay. Found the entertainment. Okay, well, that's a good one. Okay, whatever he desired. Okay. That would, I would assume that would include women, right? Okay. Well, no, he, 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 he says knowledge is folly as well. 
He says knowledge. He seems to call into question wisdom. He seems to call into question to having everything you could want. We may not have anything, but there's other parts where he talks about how good wisdom is. So it's a little confusing at times. He talks about wisdom a lot. So that would be the hard part, trying to figure out exactly how to interpret it. So we don't have anything that specifically mentions women, do we? But what, what do we do? We do have that he seems to imply that he didn't. What was the verse that he didn't? He basically took everything that he wanted. Two ten. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked at all my works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I labored to do, and behold, all is vanity, vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. He realized that it was all vain. So we may not have specifically referenced women, but that would include women if you can look at anything you want and you take and you have because you obviously saw a lot of women and he took and had a whole lot of women. Agreed? Okay. Yeah, but, then, but look what he says to the young man. God will bring thee into judgment. So he, he, he offers a, he seems to realize how it's all going to end, right? But, but, but that would seem to indicate that he's speaking here almost as an older person. Right. right? So I'm saying that maybe the only way to interpret the Song of Solomon is to understand it. It's an unusual book, so we have to place it in the context of the other three. And if we put Song of Solomon early, Proverbs in the middle, and Ecclesiastes at the end, then Ecclesiastes may hold the key to how we interpret the other two. That, that's at least my theory, my working theory. I'm not saying it's perfect, but the fact that the book is so unusual, like, I, I can't, like, because that's one of my hermeneutical principles, is whenever you come to a passage that is so unusual, you start looking for possible typology or, or sim. Well, in this case, I typically would say, you're absolutely right. Let's go full allegorical. Let's go typology. But you start working that in the Song of Solomon, I'm sorry, you're going to end up with some weird stuff. When you start comparing breasts to the Old and New Testament, things have gotten really weird to me. Okay, things have gotten really, really weird to me at that point. All right, any, any questions before we end? Okay, well, that was supposed to, we were supposed to do the entire overview in an hour. How far did we make it? We didn't make it. So tonight we'll have to come back and see if we can actually finish it. All right, so, yeah. I wanted to finish the whole thing, but yeah, once again, a simple overview, and we didn't make it very far. All right. If you come up with any other thoughts or, or verses, uh, remember them, write them down, and then we'll, we'll add them to the discussion tonight. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we all stand here, if we're honest with ourselves, baffled and confused that why the Song of Solomon is in your word, and I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging that. It's better to come to this as acknowledging our confusion 
instead of pretending to be knowledgeable of something that has confused people for 2,000 years. Help us in our humility, seek an understanding so that we can better understand what you're trying to say to us through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,